You're listening to the Catholic Psyche Podcast. The Catholic Psyche Podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not intended to take the place of medical or mental health treatment, therapy, or diagnosis. You should always consult a trained mental health or medical professional for such treatment. Hi, this is Deacon Basil. This is Chris. And Sarah. Hi. Podcast number one for the Catholic uh, Psyche podcast. What we're going to be doing through this time is kind of talking about different aspects of different aspects of Catholic psychotherapy, Catholic psychology, how we understand through theology and philosophy our our psyche and our spirit. So what we'd like to do is just kind of describe who each of us are and kind of our background. And maybe we can start with you, Chris. Sure. So we've got a. We've got five questions here that we're each going to answer, and I think this will give us a sense of uh, who we are so we can find that out finally. <laughs> Discover ourselves. Yeah. Um, so our first, uh, the first question, introduction question here is, what is our theory of healing? Um, so the first thing that comes to mind for me is that um, thinking about health from... Uh, a philosophical perspective. So health is not, it's notoriously difficult to define health. But so I'm, earlier today I was looking at dictionary definitions and anyone want to guess what the first entry is on Merriam-Webster for health? Uh, feeling good. It's the absence of disease. Oh, that's lovely. Right. Which so, doesn't tell you a whole lot. Yeah. So, and I think it's, it's telling too, especially in our field where for so long we've had a a disease model and the things we know about the human person have been discovered through pathology, not through the study of uh, health. Hmm. Um, so there is a there's a modern bioethicist, um, Leon Cass, and he uh, defined health as the well-working of an organism as a whole. So if we're talking about um, mental health. We're going to be talking about the kind of um, the kind of functioning that the mind um, does in order to promote generally the well-being of the human person, and so I think of um, living a virtuous life as part of mental health. I think of um, working for the common good as part of mental health, and I think also of um, engaging man's highest faculties um, and living some sort of spiritual or religious vocation out as an aspect of mental health. Yeah, and we've talked before about this, you know personally, but um, now, I mean, I think that really particularly comes out of Aristotelian philosophy and kind of an understanding of the human person within Aristotelian uh, terms. And so, kind of, like, say a little bit more about how Aristotle has kind of influenced your understanding there. So, th the reason Deacon Basil is asking me about that is because um, I think he might be trying to bait me into giving <laughs> my... Full disclosure, we don't all um, agree, and I think that'll make this what? podcast interesting oh because we each have a slightly different perspective on mental health and uh, theology and um, the philosophy of the human person. So, yeah, full disclosure, um, I, I find a lot of value in the Aristotelian approach, which is one that it's a certainly a live option for Catholics. Um, and for I, I just want to point out here. I mean, you guys don't see him here, but he, he's like explaining this, and he looks really like shameful, like he's saying <laughs> Aristotelian philosophy. I mean, come on, man. Well, own your passions. It's, it's gotten a bad rap. Yeah. Would you agree or disagree? Well, yeah, mostly for me. Yeah. Well, <laughs> this well, is true. Yeah. I, uh, if you get out a little bit, you'll realize <laughs> that it's gotten a bad rap from 
from other circles as well. Yeah. So, um, I think a big a, a big part of the work of Aristotelians is just dispelling myths about Aristotelianism and about Thomism, which is like a development of Aristotelianism by St. Thomas Aquinas. Um, to get back to health, for Aristotle, all living... All, all things have ends. All natural things have, are ordered to ends. And uh, living things in particular um, are like the prototypical example of um, things that have ends. And so an end would be like a state towards which that thing is ordered. Um, when an archer shoots a bow, the bow is ordered towards hitting his, the target. And in nature, certainly we can see examples of this. Um, when we look at animals, like uh, animal behavior um, is for the sake of something, um, you know, Carnivores have sharp teeth, etc. And so human beings are ordered to ends. Uh, when you look at the kind of thing a human being is, you can discern the end um, towards which that thing is ordered and the state um, that brings about that thing's perfection. So, for example, human beings are social. And so friendship would be uh, one of the, the ends of a human life. Um, human beings who don't have friends are missing something fundamentally human and it would be incumbent on perhaps their therapist to help them, resource them in such a way as to help them achieve that end. So, you know, get some friends. Step number one. <laughs> get yeah. a life. Yeah. Agree, disagree, both of you. Sarah, we haven't heard much from you yet. Um, my philosophy of healing, I really like Cass' um, definition. I love the word holistic. And since we're in Denver, that's a very popular word. Um, and I really... Well, it's not, it's not quite bolder, but yeah. It means it means yes. like it means like uh, gluten free, dairy free, right. yeah. like yeah. putting like crystals. Um, I'm on wearing your chacos head. right now, and they're amazing. I'm sorry, sorry. Are Toms holistic? I'm wearing Toms. No, they're actually really bad for the local economy of the third world. Villages. I don't think we can say that. <laughs> I don't think we can say that on a podcast. Uh, please don't sue us. Go ahead, sir. Anywho, um, no, I love the word holistic. I love the. Um, mentality and philosophy of looking at the whole person in connection as with like each part in connection to the other um, the spirit the mind the body because everything affects each other and if your body is out of whack then those pain hormones are going to be shooting off in your brain causing your brain chemistry to be unbalanced, which it might affect your thoughts, and that can lead to suicidal ideation, etc., or one can lead to the other. Like, if you feel rejected by society, then you aren't going to engage as much, and you're going to withdraw, and that leads to social atrophy. It can lead to physical atrophy. Um, so for me, the theory of healing involves the entire person mm. and approaching each aspect um, as an equal part of the project of, that is the person. Yeah, you know, sometimes I talk with clients, and I was, when you were talking, I was thinking about this, that, you know, we tried so hard in psychology and medicine to you know, separate the mind from the body and the soul from the body, and, this, yeah, and one will always affect the other. And in fact, you know, they, they overlap so much. This mm -hmm. is what, you know, particularly the last probably 30 years of research has kind of showed us, whether it's you know, EMDR, right. biofeedback, music therapy, um, and even just you know some of the stuff that I work with with uh, you know the Neptic psychotherapeutic model, like it's the body, mind, spirit mm -hmm. all together. The composite, and, yeah. And we've really right. kind of changed that. Uh, 
gotten that mindset in the last really probably what three decades i would say well yeah certainly it's kind of nice to see an ancient view of the human person vindicated by modern science right. when uh we first started talking about this podcast i mean it, it was sort of billed as this like um, general discussion of the interplay between Catholic thought and modern psychotherapy. And like immediately when, when I heard that topic, I was like, oh yeah, the first thing we have to talk about is mind body unity. I mean, yeah. to even, to yes, even make those absolutely. distinctions, I think is already to concede too much to, you know, Cartesian, uh, modernity, whatever you want to call it. Descartes annoys me so much. Well, I hope he's just complaining about this regular punching bag for us on this podcast, but, um, that would be great. That'd be great. Uh, yeah. So for, for, for a Thomist, um, so, you know, here's a controversial conclusion Thomas reaches. He doesn't think that the saints in heaven are persons properly speaking yet until the general resurrection. That's how important the the body is. Um, that's one of the reasons why the assumption is a big deal. Um, Mary gets that she gets to be a person now, but the St. <laughs> Peter is the, you know, the spiritual soul of St. Peter. And for, you know, for Aquinas matter is that which, um, individuates us. It's that which makes us, um, unique and uninstantiable and, um, in some sense who we are. Now there's disagreement about that, even among, even among the niche, and super cool group that are people who read scholastic philosophy. <laughs> but, but the body, you can't, I really don't think you can overplay the importance of the body. Like you were saying, Sarah, like your stress hormones, you know, you're like when you get your blood work and you see that you have low vitamin D, that could very well be the key to some of your sadness. At least it was for me growing up on the East Coast. Yeah, seriously. I grew up in the Midwest, um, so for like half the year, the sky is gray. And then I moved out to Denver five years ago, and the amount of sunshine that I see and that I am exposed to um, in the past few years has just like brightened my mood so much. Literally and figuratively. Yes. <laughs> yeah, right. It's well, like, that, uh, that wouldn't be the case. It would be hard to explain if the mind was something was a separate substance from the body. That'd be hard to account for. Why would sunshine make you happier? Happiness is something to do with your soul and sun just, hits just your skin. Just decide to be happy. Like you just have to choose to be happy, okay? Right. Well, you, you hear that kind of from, from uh, it's, people who don't know what they're talking it's about. It's such a flippant response and it, it oversimplifies things too much. And humans are messy. Humans mm -hmm. are so messy and complicated. Uh, Deacon Basil, what is your theory of healing? Yeah, the right one. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, You've been patient with I, my I have, Aristotelianism. Been very no, so so you know, essentially, uh, really, what what Chris and we we have a good time about this. I think we actually agree on basically, you know, all of the fundamentals. Certainly, and then you know they develop and, and get nuanced. My um, focus has been on what we would call the the uh, Greek patristics. So for those of you that don't know, there's the there's the Latin patristics, there's the Greek patristics and um, define patristics because yeah, most question. people don't know what that don't word know. means yeah. um, unless so they the, study it. Unless, fair enough. So the patristics are really those church fathers um, that were writing, you know, and, and there's a lot of debate as to when that, you know, what the period of the patristics were. Um, I think probably the easiest way to kind of break it is the is the Eighth Ecumenical Council, and I know that's a lot of weird 
phraseology there, but essentially like 800 is where that kind of ends. So that kind of first stage of, of authors writing about, um, about the faith and kind of commenting on the scriptures and commenting on on theology and it's really where we gain really incredible insights first from uh, from the uh, from what it means to be a Christian, what God is, how we can be as people, and so you know using that and sort of a, I'm, a, I'm a Byzantine Catholic, I'm sure uh, that'll come up a lot, but as a Byzantine Catholic, you know what we look at is what is the image, the icon of uh, of health. Um, and, you know, Byzantine icons we have all over the place, but, you know, the one that I have always viewed as the image of health is actually the, uh, the transfiguration and the icon of the transfiguration. So, you know, Christ goes up on Mount Tabor. That's why my practice, why our practice is called Mount Tabor Counseling. Um, and so Christ goes up onto Mount Tabor with uh, Peter, James, and John, and he's transfigured, and his garments are white, and his face is illumined, and, you know, he is entirely in union, he is God, but entirely in union with the Father and the Holy Spirit, and, and, and we get a, a, a glimpse of that. Um, and and the, the phrase, the, what's called a traparian, always says, we, uh, the apostles gazed on as much glory as they could perceive. Now, what's important about that is he was in union with God. And he was God, but he was in complete experience of that and showed us that. And that's what health for me is, mm. an experience of the intimate indwelling of the Holy Spirit within our hearts. Now, we, the Holy Spirit is always ready. We call it the uncreated light. He's always ready to enter into our hearts. And sometimes we don't um, cooperate with that. We don't allow him in. Like the dirty, uh, the dirty mirror. The dirty mirror, right? yeah. Saint exactly. Basil the Great, I think. Yeah, or... exactly. Yep. Yeah. And so it's that that dirty mirror that doesn't allow the Holy Spirit to enter into our hearts fully. Um, and he was always willing, and he's always ready. But it's us who are saying no to that. And so you know that could be for a lot of reasons. That could be because of you know a, a, a difficult marriage. That could be mm -hmm. because of um, you know all of the all of the different things that you know we right. work with with clients on a regular basis. It could be that persistent sin. It could just be you know. All sorts of things. And so the process for me of healing is a process of allowing the Holy Spirit to come in and do the work for us. So uh, would it be correct to say that for you, a therapist is really a mirror scrubber? I, they, I've always described the, myself actually as that. Yeah, the gunk, you should say Then that. the uncreated light can transform and transfigure the soul yeah, once yeah, you I, get the, I, the crust. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> going to be... Um, um, the Feast of First Fruits, you know, the um, Transfiguration here pretty soon. So we always bring our first fruits, which, you know, for those of us that don't, um, that don't uh, work out in the fields, it's very awkward. So we always bring that. I always thought I should bring a, a squeegee um, for mine because I always visioned myself as a psychological um, squeegee to allow the Holy Spirit in. That's I know that's really weird. Adorable. Um, well, oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Super cute. Um, let's get also to know. Also cool story about the Mount Tabor and the name. Yeah. I don't think I knew that. Also, we're uh, down the street from Tabor Road. Yeah, well, you know, it That's does have funny. that added kind of benefit of being like, oh, you're in Denver, there's mountains, Mount Tabor, there must be one of those mountains. Yeah, we're there. fairly close to the foothills. Right. Yeah, yeah, very, very close. Yeah. So. They're really pretty. I know. Okay, question number two. What sort of experience do you have? Yeah, so maybe I'll start this time. So my background, I'm... Well, all three of us are studying, or, you know, all three of us are, but I'm a licensed professional counselor, um, a candidate, but uh, what is called an LPC, and that means that I specialize in individual therapy, though I do have advanced training in um, couples. Um, so uh, my background primarily is working in, in cognitive behavioral therapy and, and, and kind of in that hesychastic, neptic model, and we'll talk about that 
eventually. But um, the idea of it is that um, my, my background's there, and then I also have advanced work in um, uh, trauma modalities called EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, which is ridiculously cool. Um, and uh, yeah, so I work with couples, I work with individuals, I work with families, I work with groups, um, and uh, usually for in, within the cognitive hesychastic model. Cool. cool. That's a lot of those words will have to be explained. Well, it's some many, yeah. many big words. Uh, unless we just have like the like super initiated listeners right off the bat who are like, oh yeah, finally a podcast about the cognitive hesychastic neptic method. Like about time. If that's the case, they should totally email me. Okay. And we'll, and we'll chat because that would be really cool. <laughs> yeah. Maybe there's more of them out there. <laughs> there's more of, me, of them. <laughs> yeah. Um, so my, terrifying. yeah, my experience is like this long winding road that I, I'm also a LPC licensed professional counselor. Um, I studied music in undergrad with a minor in psychology and then, um, discovered music therapy late in my studies. Music therapy is an allied health profession that uses music and music interventions to help clients meet non-musical goals. Studied that in graduate school along with coursework in mental health counseling and, um, came to Denver and did additional coursework in psychotherapy and got that LPC. So uh, I've worked with kiddos with developmental disabilities, autism, Down syndrome. Um, I've worked in schools and special education settings. I've done work in stroke rehabilitation, um, worked with the elderly, Alzheimer's, dementia, and currently doing most of my work with children who have experienced trauma, abuse, and neglect. Um, I've got a little bit of a confusing resume because I'm trained in two different things called NMT. The first is NM, yeah, N is in Nancy, M as in um, Mike Magnificat, T wow. as in Thomism. So uh, the first is neurologic music therapy, and that's a a week long training where it's like essentially built out of the research of um, that started here in Colorado at CSU actually, using music therapy techniques grounded in neuroscience research to um, essentially uh, treat neurologic disorders, but now it's expanded. And then the second NMT is the neurosequential model of therapeutics, and that is also a brain-based modality or a brain-based way of thinking about trauma, especially child trauma. The blog that just went up a couple of weeks ago, kind of from you, uh, describing the, uh, the what music therapy is, I was really taken by, like, it's way more than just listen to Spotify and feel better, you know? Yeah, okay, I, so I have a good analogy about that. They screened this movie Alive Inside recently um, in my hometown, and it's a documentary about iPods in nursing homes, and we had a panel discussion afterwards. A few of my grad school professors were there, and they were answering the question, like, why isn't this a music therapy documentary? And the analogy that I came up with on the way to that movie was, if, uh, if that's music therapy, then doing... This is probably dated now, but using Nintendo Wii, you know, Nintendo, do you know what that is, Deacon Vessel? Yes. Uh, okay. Yes. Using um, Wii, Wii Fit would be physical therapy, if that's music therapy, right? Or um, reading a self-help book would be psychotherapy. So yeah, the, what, one of the points I drew out in that uh, blog post is that music therapy requires a music therapist, the same way that psychotherapy requires a psychotherapist. Yeah. Nice. Uh, my so, what turn. Are yeah. Yeah, what are you up to? Great. Um... I am currently studying uh, to be a counselor at Regis University here in stunning Denver, Colorado. Um, I previously uh, completed a master's in theology and through 
a very interesting year, um, Jesus brought up this old desire slash conversation that we had had many years ago about pursuing counseling and helping people heal. And then he kicked my butt and I started studying it. Um, and it, I love it. And I never thought I would love studying anything this much. Um, and it's just, I've become so passionate about this and I love talking about healing and helping people be vulnerable and to seek healing and to be whole mm. and to be healthy and to live their best, fullest life that they were created to live and to be to be saints, essentially. Um, that I, I think I annoy people when we have conversations, if, especially if they're not in the field or if they're very resistant to the idea of therapy. Um, and I'm, I get very passionate about trite phrases like, oh, you just need to pray more. Mm. Or, oh, just offer it up. Because, no, sometimes you can't just offer it up. Because you can't even lift your head off the ground mm. to look at God to say, help me. You need someone else to do that for you. You need someone to support you sometimes. And I'm just really excited about this journey. Yeah. So, That's yeah. so cool. You went, you got, you're about three-fourths of the way through it. Mm. Two-thirds? Getting there. One-third. One-third? Oh, okay. By the time this, a little bit more than this one goes third. up, she'll be she'll almost be, yeah. done with the she'll program. She'll be fully licensed, fully credentialed. You know, what, one thing he said, he's like... Shh, you, don't you, listen you, to them. <laughs> You're like thinking you're bothering people when you're getting super jazzed about psychotherapy and Catholic theology. But the thing that comes to mind for me is the fact that when you study, you know, counseling, psychotherapy and psychology, what you're studying, you're studying things that everyone goes through and that everyone is interested in. So whether like, or not they realize it. Right. So actually, no, like everyone, everyone wants to be healthy, whole um, happy. fulfilled, happy, eudaimonic, beatific. <laughs> Everyone wants that. And so... Theosis? <laughs> d divinized? Divinized, yeah. We will define all of these words at some point, I promise. <laughs> yeah, so it's... Um, actually, one of the things I, I got... Really, I got out of grad school was I, I learned how to listen better. So when, you know, like every one of my interactions with people be took on a new depth. So, I mean, mm -hmm. isn't that, aren't we super lucky to have this field that we, yeah. we can actually like the insights we learn aren't, aren't exclusive to this or that particular niche, um, area of human life. The insights we learn concern the whole of human life and are applicable. Yeah. You know, we, obviously every, every, everyone has a unique situation, but like when you learn, when you learn how to be empathic, that's something you can pretty, pretty much carry with you into all areas of your life. Absolutely. No, I don't no. like people. Although, you know, when I'm off the clock, I'm like, I can't, I can't be tuned in right now, yeah. so. Well, yeah, that's, that's kind of the therapist's, uh, actually, that's the spouse of the therapist's cross to bear. Oh my gosh, yeah, so your, Sorry, dear. your wife has like the, the spouse of the clergyman, right. and the, that's really rough. That's rough. Yeah. I think Jeez. we should get both of your wives on the podcast to talk about that sometime. That because actually, that's that well, and my wife is, is, in, is in school to be a, a, a therapist as well. She is. So, um, she is yeah. fabulous. Yep. 
So, um, Chris, tell us a little bit about, uh, kind of like, specifically, you kind of alluded to it, but specifically, what is your kind of theological, philosophical background in, the, in these kind of things? How do you enter into it? Yeah, so the uh, first thing I'm going to say is that uh, I appreciate that I'm sitting here with two theologian therapists. That's an original, that's the neologism that Deacon Basil coined. So there's like a little registered trademark symbol yeah. next to it. That's but, right. But I'm going to go ahead and call myself, not call myself that, um, because theology Here's the thing about theology. Theology is the, the queen of the sciences. Theology is not something to play around with. Um, theology is more difficult than metaphysics. Metaphysics is harder than calculus. And I had some trouble with calculus when I was younger. So I always think it's funny that they have like theology on tap. Can you imagine if they had like differential equations on tap and they had someone who like took like watched a YouTube video about that talking about it? I don't do math. I was a writer in college. So the, I don't the point, what the you're point is that it's theology, the, like you know, entire like civilizations have been destroyed because of like theological mistakes. <laughs> it's probably not something to just like approach in a cavalier way. So uh, my interest is principally in Catholic philosophy, although um, I would prefer maybe spirituality for myself over theology. Certainly, I have a a, a, a flavor of spirituality that works for me and. Um, I'm, a, I'm a member of a Maronite church, which is an Eastern Rite. Not the same Eastern Rite that Deacon Basil is here representing, but... Um, well, I'm sorry, too. There you go. Yeah, both of you Byzantines. That's right. Technically, um, I think I'm still Roman. Yeah, I think I am, too. I think we have to both get, like, special permission from our from yeah. the Archbishop to switch. And also, Grace and I got married in the Roman Rite, so I, I think we're kind of locked in. But, but mean, we worship with Maronites. Breathing so. with both lungs is a thing, right? That's what they say. That's what they say. No, it's totally real. <laughs> That's oh. what they say. Um, it's totally real. We love our Roman brothers and sisters. They're great. They're all they're, wonderful. They're, they're lovely. So the short answer is, um, I yeah, the the Thomistic approach is, is the one that I find um, the most satisfying. And uh, so I would follow. But, you know, I guess to broaden the net a little bit, just, you know, in general, this amazing Catholic philosophical patrimony, in particular, the philosophy of the Middle Ages. So um, Albertus Magnus, Thomas Aquinas and John Duns Scotus would be like big the big three awesome dudes who wrote a lot of cool things. And and Albertus Magnus is Albert the Great. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, well, you know, Magnus sounds a little he heftier than the Great, but um, they were all great and um, so not great. always easy to read, but had insights about the human person that are as true today as they ever were. So. For instance, I like to think about um, the role that virtue plays in the lives of our clients. Yeah. The mm -hmm. ethical theory of the Middle Ages today is usually broadly labeled virtue ethics. A good contemporary book on the subject would be After Virtue by Alistair McIntyre. He talks about the, the, a bit of the quandary that we're in since we abandoned virtue ethics and how it's hard to fit the pieces together. I think sometimes our clients come in having trouble fitting the pieces together and they haven't really been exposed to this, this very simple and very satisfying explanation for human behavior that you don't really need laboratory experiments to arrive at. You just need the general observation that was available to Aristotle, Plato, and certainly to the medieval philosophers. So yeah, virtue. Virtue is a big deal and it doesn't mean, you know, rigid, crusty, um, almsgiving or, you know, humble church, holier-than-thou piety. It means excellence, happiness, fulfillment, the kinds of things you talked about, Sarah. I have a feeling you're going to be more on my side on this, so why don't you go next? What's your theological and philosophical background? 
And then um, how can we team up against Deacon Basil? You could try. I always love doing that. Um, my background, I have a master's in theology from the Augustine Institute, um, which is... Don't give me that look. I'm not giving you a look. <laughs> um, I enjoyed it. Sorry. <laughs> and through that journey, um, I discovered the Byzantine church, actually. I was taking a class on mystagogy, and the professor had us read The Wellspring of Worship by Jean Corbon, who is an Eastern theologian, and I was just falling in love with the language that he was using. And I realized that um, this Byzantine parish was like five minutes away from my house, and I could go see this in action. And I showed up one day, and because the church is tiny, the pastor made me stand up and introduce myself, and he asked me where my home parish was, and I said I didn't have one, and then for some reason, he said, well, this is your home now, because that's who he is as a person. And I just kept showing up, and that was three years ago. So that's a little of my um, theological background. Um, I was raised Roman, and for me that was good, because I think... Of the three transcendentals, truth, goodness, and beauty, I'm most attracted to truth. Um, so for me, I like to describe this interaction of Roman and Byzantine spiritualities as I needed an iron framework so that roses could grow, um, which I really love analogies and imagery like that. So I hope that describes or gives you an image of what I, or how I think. Um, You've only been there for three years? Yeah. Wow. I, I remember so this. so integral. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's one of those things where you just kind of... I just showed up. So and... you're totally breathing with both lungs. And you're still... Or are you, have you sort of jumped ship? Are you, like, um, 100% on board the Byzantine train? I'm never going to read another, like, papal encyclical ever again. <laughs> read encyclicals? I love... I love Ratzinger. Um, Deus Caritas S is my favorite papal document that I've ever read, um, and I haven't read many of them, but that's the one that I keep going back to. Um, God is love, and just the way he describes things is so beautiful. Mm. And I'm not super, well, I'm, I am super German. I'm not 100% German, but I'm just enough to love that linear logical thought process, um, as opposed to John Paul II's very Eastern, circular logic where he goes around and around the same point five different times from 20 different angles and uses, like, the same terms to describe things, and then he uses completely different terms to describe the same thing, and it's like, I don't know where you're going, and this hurts my brain, but it's beautiful, and I love it. Can I just have a hug, and then I'll go read Ratzinger? I think he'd give you a hug, you know what I mean? He would give you a hug. And then, and then there's, like, the Pope Francis, like... It's like, like, let's go to the soup kitchen. Right, right. Just straight up, like, in the trenches approach to theology, which is really good. Yeah. I love how much he messes with people. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he messes with people, for sure. Which I think is a good thing, because... Totally a good thing. Because people need to be messed with. They do. Theology is bigger than the human mind can handle. And some of the things are going to be more than we can define, I think one Mr. Of the Thomas. Huge, it's okay. 
That, I get into this all the time with, with my wife about like whether or not like the Thomist um, optimism about definitions like is actually uh, like inhibits our like creativity in any way. And actually Thomas Aquinas was pretty pessimistic generally about our ability to know essences of things. Like we could hardly exhaust the essence of a fly. He says that. But um, Deacon, what is your... Uh, I wonder if you're going to say anything about the hesychastic method. What is your theological or philosophical background? Can you just define hesychastic method? Yeah, what does that word mean? Uh, yeah, great question. Um, so essentially the hesychasts were the monks in the East uh, Eastern Church, um, and they developed this entire understanding of what can be really badly defined as quiet, being quiet. And, <laughs> and that doesn't mean, like, uh, just not talking. Um, because if that was the case, then I would never be able to get anywhere close to this. Um, but the True idea fact. of the uh, of the Hesychast is that you have the interior stillness. Mm. And that doesn't mean that God is not present. In fact, it's the exact opposite. Sometimes the Hesychast get called quietist, where, you know, it's like, like you know, completely still and there's absolutely nothing going on. No, it's the Holy Spirit constantly within us. It's mm. going into the, the interior room um, of our heart um, and experiencing... You know, the name of the Lord, the, the Jesus prayers, is, is, is the, one of the tools for that. But it's, uh, it's the experience of, of, of the Holy Spirit within our hearts. And so, mm -hmm. you know, how, how that kind of, you know, has played out for me kind of practically is that I, I have really turned back to those, those ancient monastic texts, um, particularly Evagrius of Pontus. Um, they, they're, they're Sarah's laughing because she totally did not expect that. <laughs> Anybody that spends any time with me, um, like more than about 15 minutes, will hear the name Evagrius um, come out of... But, but aside from being ridiculously fun to say, um, you know, what he, what he really was that first um, kind of generation of monks that went out into the desert. And he had to, he had to um, you know, develop a way of, of helping these, these young monks develop virtue and develop... This, he developed this concept of the eight evil thoughts. Right, he wrote like a diagnostic manual. Yeah, I mean his his eight and evil thoughts is a, is a diagnostic well. and treatment manual for, um, you know, when you are, you know, when you have that thought of gluttony, not mm -hmm. just that not, not just that desire, but like even before that desire comes, like that thought of gluttony or that thought of anger. Like, so astute listeners will note a certain connection to a certain evidence based contemporary method of psychotherapy. Yeah, co cognitive behavioral That's therapy right. is really so how it comes Evagrius out. Evagrius um, got to it first. Yeah, Evagrius, you know, uh, some what, 1500 years, yeah, yeah before, uh, before back well, 1700. Back Ellis, yeah. Yeah, back before uh, Ellis and, and uh, Beck developed it. And so, you know, I, I, I integrate a lot of that together within uh, within my understanding of the human person. And, you know, we, we joke and, uh, you know, I, I have a lot of fun with Chris about, like, you know, the, the sort of seeming disconnect between Aristotelian and Evagrius and Thomas and, uh, and, uh, and East, the East, and they really aren't separate. They are um, two sides of, a, of, of, a, of the same coin, and they really are just looking at the same truths. And so it really is quite fun, though, to, uh, to give each other a hard time. It's, it's one of my favorite things to do. Um, so um, We enjoy giving you a hard time, too. It's okay. I know. I know. Yes, but what can I say? You know, I, I think kind of Practically, I mean, how does that come out in the in the therapy method with the client? Right. And you know, for me, for example, you'll see a, a Hesychast um, prayer bench right over in the corner of the practice here. Um, and so, you know, we'll we'll use the Jesus prayer 
will pray, um, you know, as, as sort of that mindfulness technique. And I know a lot of people are going to freak out because they don't really understand what mindfulness is, and that's fine. But, um, you know, it's, it's Eastern mindfulness is really what it is. So Eastern Catholic, Eastern Christian mindfulness. And so, you know, that practice can be integrated as well. Sometimes I find it a lot more effective to just talk about one of the eight evil thoughts instead of, you know, instead of going through and being like, is that... Is that a major depressive disorder, as defined by the DS Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorder, or is it just anger? You know, mm. like like, and and so I can find that. Now, of course, we diagnose, we do all of those kind of things, and do our due diligence there. But you know, in a practical way, it can be a lot better to just talk about you know from an Evagrius perspective. So we also use Evagrius's way of questioning those thoughts and kind of debating those thoughts um, within your mind. So you have a thought of anger. How do you debate that? How do you talk back to that thought of anger? And so it can be you know, very much within the, the sort of practical cognitive behavioral method. Yeah, I am pumped about getting deeper into that yeah. in future podcasts. That, yeah, the, the question of how, it's one thing to have, to have a theology that um, you assent to or that guides your life, but it's another thing to integrate that into the therapy session. One thing we've talked about off mic is the difference between a Catholic therapist and a, you know, and Catholic psychotherapy, like therapy that integrates Catholic, um, teaching, Catholic teaching. Yeah, Catholic thought. So there's a number of ways this can happen, but I think one of the profound things about being a Catholic is that, you know, especially I think some of the, um, some of the philosophical um, ideas in Catholic thought are universal. Uh, just like the word Catholic suggests. And so really, all therapy is, in a sense, Catholic. Catholic from the Greek words kata holos, which means according to the whole. There For you those go. of you who haven't studied Greek. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Wherever the, what's the, um, what was it, Ignat- St. Ignatius in the first, first century with the first usage of Catholic? Wherever the, wherever the bishops are, there's the Catholic Church. There's the Church, yeah. yeah. Yes. So... Yeah, that's all that word means. Um, and whenever we, whenever we help, or help a client, guide a client towards healing, we're, we're helping them live a better life. We're helping them get closer to the perfection to which they're called. When I work with kids, I don't usually, I don't usually expect them to recite the Jesus prayer 10,000 times in complete stillness because kids are squirmy and they like to run around and they're bored easily. I, I totally make my four-year-old. Like, is that weird? Well, your four-year-old is getting ready to be, like, the next... Uh, who's the monk who sat on the pole for, oh, like... Oh, the stylites. Yeah, uh, the, you're the next yeah. stylite. But, uh, you know. but the, most of the kids I work with aren't quite at that master ascetic level. And so we play, and we sing, and we move, and we dance. And those are experiences that give them a sense of intersubjectivity. That's another fancy word. But give them an, a, a sense of being with someone else, being in relationship... Earlier, Sarah, you, you talked about your favorite encyclical where mm-hmm. Pope Benedict XVI speaks of God as love. The really amazing insight about that is that God is a trinity. So God is not just, not just love in some abstract sense or in some narcissistic sense, but love, love between persons. Love in community. Commun- commun- communal love, right? And mm-hmm. so then if you, you, you consider also the Thomistic insight that God is being as such, the ground of all being, the ground of all being is communal love, love between persons. And so any experience of love between another human being is an experience of the divine. And an experience of affiliation, of belonging, of relationship, 
of being understood and attuned to another person for a child who's been traumatized and didn't get that during those sensitive periods early in development, that is an experience of the divine in therapy. Which is just amazing and gives me goosebumps. So cool. It is. It is. It is so cool to realize that human beings, individuals, were not made to be isolated. We know each other in and through community, through communion, not just in an abstract sense, but in a real, difficult, tangible, beautiful, vulnerable sense. Um, I'm the only single person here. These, both of these fellas are married, and they can speak so much more deeply about this than I can. Um, I'm just very passionate about supporting that community that is marriage and that is love. Um, and it just blows my mind how amazing and how spectacular community that is truly holy um, can lead people to sanctity, to sanity, even. Um, because when we're isolated and alone, we fall into ourselves so deeply that we lose who we are. We fall into a place that is dark and cold and alone, and life does not grow in places that are dark and cold and isolating. I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is Antarctica in the middle of the winter. Yeah, I knew a There's priest nothing. from I knew a priest who spent time in both Siberia and northern Alaska, where they have like polar winters, like an hour or two of sunlight, or like zero hours of sunlight. A that day. sounds so awful and sad. So, but also consider that for for a Christian, I'm gonna like accidentally talk about theology, and I hope that's okay. Um, no, for a Christian, I'll allow it. <laughs> For a Christian, um, communion d doesn't end with being in a room full of people, you know, holding hands during the Our Father or whatever it is. Kumbaya. Kumbaya. For a Christian, you know, the, the stylite had profound community. The Desert Fathers alone in the desert had profound community. Community the, extends to the communion of saints. Community can be felt spiritually even when not physical or palpable or present. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, I, I think that priest up in northern Alaska felt community, even though he has a very ascetic and monastic temperament. When you read that in like the the letters that the Jesuits would send with their missionaries, you know, yeah. uh, and you could just see this just incredible like love and camaraderie and community, like separated by the world. Right. Sure. Know? Sure. And it was still there, and it's really beautiful. But for most of us, for most of us who have not ascended above the level of sense experience, we need to feel that community in really tangible ways. And so I think that's honestly, that's a first step for a lot of people experiencing depression, anxiety. I mean, more, you know, more people live alone now in America than in any other place at any other time in human history. Mm -hmm. And it's not just family. I mean, sometimes that can be like fetishized, like the family is the end all be all, the ultimate community. The Christian community extends far beyond the biological family or the the family of the sacramental family of marriage. The, you know, the our community extends um, to all of our brothers and sisters, and uh, I mean, the, the common good extends to the ends of the earth. So I think it's up to us to cast that net as wide as we can. Yeah, I uh, 
I think this is all really important, but I'm also looking at the time, and you know, as therapists, we are on a 50-minute hour, so we got to get going here. Um, my my last question, which I I absolutely am so so curious about, what's your most embarrassing litur liturgical experience? Like, what what's your most embarrassing experience within a liturgy? I'll start. I uh, I worked at a, a Catholic church, a Roman church um, here in town as a youth minister, and. The youth mass, uh, especially during the summer, ironically, would have no youth in it. Um, and well, it was early, you know, basically um, early, early summer, late spring. And it was Pentecost. And I didn't have a lector. So I was like, okay, well, I'll just, I'll go ahead and read the, the first reading, which, of course, is the, the coming of the Holy Spirit. And then the apostles go out and they preach to all of the different tribes, or all of the different people in Jerusalem. And... Uh, they go out and then they, it names all of the all of the different uh, you know the, we are people from all of these different places and, and you know, we are Arabs and Greeks and Romans and goes through all of the very very complicated names which even still years later I still can't pronounce well and I I'm, I'm just thankful that now as a deacon I don't have to um, you guys have to um, as, as lectors but so I get all done and I just I just butcher it right and the priest who was preaching his name's Father Alan Hartway. He, lovely, wonderful man. But he gets up and he's a professor um, at, uh, at uh, university up in, up in this town and um, he gets up and he specializes in, in languages. Um, he gets up and he goes, well, uh, for his homily, well, <laughs> Ryan, my name is Ryan back then, Ryan, you really gave it a good shot, didn't you? Uh, let's, let's actually translate what you were trying to say. And then he goes through and he reads every single name appropriately in perfect diction, perfect pronunciation. I'm just sitting there being like, there you go. <laughs> I think if, if that experience could be repeated every single day, you would just be a master of humility. So how can yeah. we how can yeah. we facilitate how can <laughs> we help you by facilitating that humiliation? Yeah, I, I uh, uh, that's a great question. Um, I haven't thought about that. What I would say is I have uh, I have parishioners. Oh, good, good. Yeah, yeah, there you so, go. Yeah, yeah. Sarah, do you have a and a daughter and a daughter and a daughter and a wife, for sure and a wife hundred percent. Uh, do you have an embarrassing liturgical experience, or have they all just been so great? Um, one time when I was a kid, I was serving at Mass in, in this Roman parish, lovely parish, um, and it was the consecration, so, you know, we were kneeling in front of the altar, and I just pass out. Oh, no! Right in the middle of the consecration, and, like, my dad and another parishioner, like, rush up, and they, they try to wake me, and I just, I won't wake up. Oh, no. And I, I think I'm in bed. And I'm like, why are you bothering me? Why are you trying to wake me up? And then I realize, this is really uncomfortable and scratchy. This is carpet, not my pillow. Where am I? <laughs> um, so they pick me up and walk me behind the altar, and the priest just gives me, gives me this dirty look. It probably wasn't dirty. It probably wasn't. It was. Yeah. He was probably concerned. It's like, are you okay? Um, and then I, I missed the rest of maths because I'm in the back shaking. I don't think I ate anything before uh, church. That, yes, that'll do it. That was um, not a pleasant experience. So. Eat, eat before you give blood. Also, that's a little tip yes. for the listeners. Um, I was going to tell some, like, snarky story about like a bad recessional hymn and then I decided to become a Maronite but your story reminded me this isn't embarrassing this is just really cool so your story reminded me of a time when Grace and I had invited one of our friends who's a a, a medical doctor 
with um, she's she, she's like dual trained, had two residencies in internal medicine and um, uh, hospice and palliative care. And she came with us for like the first and only time to St. Rafka's. And this older woman right next to us passed out. And she like sprang into action and like lifted her legs to get fluid to the brain. And there was like another doctor on the other side of the church who rushed over and we had like the most overqualified team ever because Grace <laughs> is a, a certified uh, CNA and nurse assistant, uh, nurse's aide. And, and she ended up being fine, but Father Andre, instead of giving a dirty look, like stopped the mass and came over and gave her like blessing after blessing. And I think performed like a minor exorcism on her. <laughs> And she ended up being fine, but it was just like the one time we bring a doctor to mass, the woman next to us in the pews passes out and she didn't have a pulse at one point. And like this, this doctor friend, like on a daily basis works with death and knows the signs pretty well and is a pro at taking vitals. And so if if you have the faintest pulse in the world, she'd be like, oh yeah, you're healthy. She looks at us and she said, there's no pulse. This woman is now fine, but I can't account for that uh, too many, too many natural ways. So there you go. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, we probably should wrap it up and kind of explain, you know, what the plan is moving forward. So we're going to actually have two kinds of podcasts. We're going to have one that comes out near the beginning of the week, which is going to be a short um, kind of thing, which is mostly going to be probably one of us waxing about some kind of theological, psychological interaction. Um, and then you know, the long form, what we're calling the long form, is going to be these, these um, things that come out near the end of the week of us just kind of talking about the more practical side of, of how we do that and kind of the interaction uh, between the therapists, uh, the three of us. I think it's also important to say that, you know, we're open to answering questions um, that are appropriate to be asked, you know, to be broadcast. Um, you know, but if you if you have a question about, like, you know, what's going on in this case and, and um, you know, should I, you know, think about therapy or anything like that, we're more than interested in, in kind of answering those questions moving forward. And the answer is yes, you should yeah, you, seek therapy. Well, that, that's a bad example. But, you know, you get the idea, you know, what, what, what does depression look like, you know, and those kind of things. Mm-hmm. And, and we'll be able to answer those moving forward. So we'll see you, uh, you guys next time on uh, the Catholic Psyche Podcast. Adios.